Episode 60 is a big one, friends. I am not even going to try for a clever intro to this book. Today, we are talking about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. What can I even say about this book? I can say that it totally blew my mind when I first picked it up, shortly after it was published in the U.S. in 1998. I can say that it set me on a reading journey of seven books and thousands of pages that still hold a very special place in my heart. The series as a whole remains my favorite reading experience of all time. I can say that it opened up a whole new world of imagination to me, showing me what a good writer like J.K. Rowling, my queen, is really capable of. I can say that Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was and is amazing, and that it set into motion a cultural phenomenon 20 years ago. But let's be real, these are hardly hot takes. Most of us can agree. Harry Potter rules. I'll share more about why it took me so long to get this episode on the books in just a few minutes, but I am so glad that I finally did, and I do anticipate that we'll cover the other six titles in the series in future episodes. For now, though, I hope you enjoy this conversation about book number one. In it, my guests and I share our theories about why so many readers have connected with these books and characters over the years, chat about what we would have liked to see more of in Rowling's female characters, discuss what we've heard about Rowling's experience writing and publishing the book, and fangirl about the expansive nature of the magical worlds created in Hogwarts and beyond. I also reveal my true feelings about the movie adaptations and take a guess at which Hogwarts houses myself and my dog Irv are in. We did our very best to focus on Sorcerer's Stone in this conversation, but I can't say it was a total success. There are a few spoilers about later titles sprinkled throughout, and I am guilty of dropping one of the big ones. I just get so excited when I talk about Harry. Talking about Harry with me on episode 60 is Gemma Hartley, a freelance journalist and the author of Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward. Find her on Instagram at Gemma L. Hartley, on Facebook at Gemma Hartley Author, and on Twitter at Gemma Hartley. You'll hear more about why I decided that Gemma was the ideal guest for our first ever Harry Potter episode. But for now, suffice it to say that she had a very different experience with this series than I did. I can't wait for you to get her take on Harry and the gang. I also can't wait to see you over on SSR's social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. If you want to support the show, engaging with what's going on on social media is a great place to start. I also appreciate your five-star readings and reviews on iTunes and your Patreon love. Learn more about how you can support the podcast with a few dollars per month in exchange for awesome exclusive rewards at www.patreon.com slash SSRPodcast. Thanks to all of the patrons tuning in now. And good news, I have recently expanded the SSR merch collection to include t-shirts. Go to www.ssrpodcast.com shop to show your love for the pod with the purchase of a t-shirt, tote bag, or bookmark set. As always, I'd also encourage you to check out Libra FM, my favorite platform for listening to audiobooks. Libra FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. When I shop for audiobooks on Libro.fm, I support my local Brooklyn indie Books Are Magic, but you can choose any store you want. Doesn't that feel better than supporting that other big old company? I thought so. And now, I think it's time, at long last, to get into Harry Potter. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. 
If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkasek, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Gemma. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Okay, I feel like I have to take a really big deep breath because it's the moment that we've all been waiting for, and I have to say that I'm a little bit nervous because it's it's here. It's like the Super Bowl of SSR. We're talking about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And the podcast has now been going for over a year. I've clearly been dragging my feet on booking the episode because A, it's one of my favorite books, my favorite series, and I like just felt really nervous about kind of like letting it go. And B, I'm just kind of like nervous to touch this book that I know means so much to so many people. And so Gemma, sometimes I feel like my guests are the ones that are a little bit nervous, but today I think I'm the nervous one. I don't know. I'm kind of nervous. I feel like I'm the only adult in the world like reading Harry Potter for the first time. (laughs) Well, I just probably made you more nervous than you needed to be. So I'm going to try to take it back, reel it in. We're going to walk through this together. But I have to say that the reason that I finally was ready to just like let go and let God on this book was because of what you just said, which is the fact that you're coming to this book series for the first time as an adult. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more about why that's the case. And then I have a few other disclaimers that I want to share before we really get into like the meat of the episode. But I'm really interested in your personal experience with Harry Potter. Yes. So I'd never read Harry Potter as a child because I went to this really small private Christian school that banned it for witchcraft. So it just, you know, it never happened for me. And then in high school, it was past its hype point at, you know, that time. And so I never got around to reading it. And then I was an adult and I felt really weird about reading it for the first time, like in my 20s. And now I'm in my 30s and I'm just like, you know what? The time has come. And the time has come because I have a third grader who is making his way through the series right now. He's on book five. And I started to read them to him at night when he was like six years old. And I was like, you know what? Now is the time. Like, we have all the books in the house. I should just go through and read them all. And that is my goal for this year is to make it through all the Harry Potter books. I thought I was going to make it through one book a month and then work picked up and it got busy. So I am currently almost at the end of book four. Okay. And then I'll be caught up with my son. First of all, I'm kind of jealous that you're experiencing it for the first time because these books really are so special and so magical and there's really nothing like coming to them for the first time. I mean, I try to reread them and as much as I'd like to say, it's like exactly the same as it was the first time I found them. It's not quite. Do you remember when you were a kid and the books were banned from your school? Were you aware of them enough to sort of wish that you could get your hands on them? Like, do you remember sort of having a wistful longing to be able to read them? I did not have like a super wistful longing. I was in this really weird little bubble. Um, And one of my friends got me turned on to the Alana of Tribond series, which was really great for me at that age. And I really loved it. And so I didn't have this like longing for a book that I didn't know much about at the time. And I think I feel a lot more longing now. I remember when I finished The Sorcerer's Stone and my husband was like, what did you think? Like how... You know, how was the experience? And I was like, it's so good. And I was so happy and I loved it. And I had this super deep longing that I wish I had had that experience as a child. 
because it is so much more magical and it's so much more real to you, I think, when you're a child to experience that type of book. Uh, because I remember those first reading experiences and how deeply involved in the world you become. And I think as an adult, it's hard to get into that mind frame. I would imagine that reading them alongside your your son, at least you're sort of getting that secondhand magic a little bit, but it's not the same as when it's actually you kind of like existing in the world for the first time. Yeah, it makes me really happy that my kids are, you know, starting to come to it on their own because it's so fun when you like turn the page or like leave it on a cliffhanger and he's just like, what's going to happen? I need to know. (laughs) So he'll like stay up late and, you know, read the next chapter on his own. So it's really fun to see him experiencing it like that. Well, I'm so happy for him. I'm so happy that he has you to read along with him. I remember when I read the first book, my mom read it, I think either at the same time or shortly after, and she and I were talking about it. And then eventually I got my dad to read it, but he like, he didn't really like it as much, but it is neat to have sort of the grownups in your life participating in it alongside you. So I think that's really special. As I mentioned, I have a few disclaimers because this does feel like a really big episode and I just want to make sure that I'm setting expectations correctly. So we're going to do as much as we can to focus on book number one. And I think that will be easier given the fact that you're not all the way through the series yet. I'll try not to spoil it too much for you. I don't remember a ton of the details from the later books in the series because I've reread the earlier books more frequently. So I'll try not to spoil it for you. We will spoil the first book do spoilers on the show, of course. I know that so many of my listeners, when they found out that I was talking about Harry Potter, sort of wanted me to look at the whole series, but we're going to try to like get some longevity to Harry Potter. Like maybe we'll have other episodes in the future. So we're going to try to focus on Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And of course, sort of like the broader cultural context of this book in particular, we're not going to talk much about the movies. Listeners, I heard from a lot of you who said that you want me to do like book versus movie comparison, casting decisions, all that stuff. You can stay tuned for a bonus episode on Patreon about the movies if you're interested in the future. And for the record, I actually kind of hate the Harry Potter movie adaptations. I know that's really controversial, but I have not seen any of them past like the first half of Goblet of Fire. And that's only because my little sisters were watching them on like Freeform at one point. But after I went to see Prisoner of Azkaban in the theaters, I decided I didn't want to go see any more of them because... I just love the book so much and it was sort of like messing with my vision of the world that I'd read. So movie talk to come, future book talk to come. The other thing that I want to share about sort of the reason that I decided that Gemma was the perfect person to talk about this book with is because I know sort of my my shortcomings in being able to, to discuss this series objectively because it's so nostalgic for me. And I think it's really interesting to have a guest on the show who's coming at it from a different perspective and who's sort of seeing it with a fresh set of eyes because it would be really easy for me and like a fellow 20-year-long fan of Harry Potter to just sit here and sort of fangirl about the book back and forth for an hour. So I'm really happy to have somebody on the show who has a different experience with the series than I do. And that's why I decided that you'd be the perfect person to finally brave this title with me. Well, I feel very honored. (laughs) So as a first-timer to Harry Potter, what were your first impressions of the world and especially of the characters? I did sort of crowdsource discussion questions this morning from my social media followers because I was feeling a little panicked about how to prepare for what feels like a colossal episode. And one of the questions that we got was about your first impressions of the characters and of the world. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. My first impressions of the characters, I think 
it's so hard to talk about it without talking about the other books because, you know, you come to them when they're so young and really, you know, you get the sense that Rowling gets really deeply involved with these characters as the books go on and they evolve in such interesting ways. And so I, I wasn't like blown away by these characters at first. They seemed a little bit one dimensional to me, um, you know, just as an adult reader coming to it. And I think that's very much changed for me in my overall reading of the books. But I think that lends really well to younger readers because I think that allows them to sort of superimpose themselves on it. I think that's what I saw with my son is like, oh, everyone can see themselves in Harry Potter because he's not like this really in-depth character in the first book. And so you're like, oh, I can see myself in this world. I can see myself being the one to get these letters. I can, you know, it draws on really broad feelings of childhood and of not belonging. And every kid feels that way. Like, you know, even if you're the most privileged kid in the world, you still have that little like, oh, no, no one really understands me feeling inside. And so I think that's what really brings readers into the world. It's interesting that you say that because I guess I hadn't really thought about the fact that Harry and his pals are so much less developed in this first book than they are later on. And that makes sense objectively, like in a seven book arc, obviously the characters are going to develop more. But I was thinking about the fact that this was probably the first book that I read as a kid that I connected to so much that had a boy as the protagonist. I tended to read mostly books that were led by girls or like teen girls. That was sort of my like sweet spot. And as somebody that read pretty much everything that was in my school library, I eventually sort of like deigned to read books that were about boys. And as I say all the time on this show, like that's a whole other conversation about the way that we target different kinds of books to kids based on their gender. But I think that it's interesting that this was a book that I came to voluntarily. It's not a book that a librarian handed to me because I'd read everything else and I just like needed to read a book about a little boy. I picked this book out on my own because I'd heard that it was really good. I bought it with a gift card at a store called Zany Brainy in my neighborhood and those are really cool stores that are no longer in business. But I remember I like marched up to the counter with my gift card and bought it myself. And upon reflection, I just think it's interesting that I, I think I was probably nine years old. I connected so much with this 11-year-old boy, and that was the first time that it happened to me with this book. And I wonder if part of it is because Harry, in some ways in this first installment in the series, is kind of like this neutral character that you can map onto regardless of like the specific circumstances of your life or your personal demographic. Yeah. And I really was comparing this to like other books that I read in my childhood um, that had much stronger characters, but I had sort of the same experience where I would latch on to those female characters that I, you know, felt this deep connection with because of how they presented themselves. But with Harry, it's just, he is a very neutral character. And I think everyone can see some of themselves in him. And I think that is what really brought everyone to the series. And then he obviously gets less neutral as the series goes on, but not so much that you lose your connection with him. Hermione also has a huge part to play, I think, in the fact that so many girls connected with this book. I was obsessed with Hermione. For the first probably three books, I thought her name was pronounced Hermione. So that, in hindsight, is embarrassing. But I loved her. I connected with her. I, too, had really bushy hair. I have, like, very thick hair. And when I was a kid, I didn't know how to control it. And it just felt puffy. And I didn't feel pretty. But I did feel smart. 
I always felt smart and I always felt comfortable at school. And very early on in my Harry Potter experience, I think I sort of transferred my loyalty from Harry to Hermione. And I would imagine that that experience is shared by a lot of readers who were my age, who were also sort of more comfortable mapping themselves onto female protagonists and found their way to Harry and then sort of stumbled into a best friendship with Hermione along the way. Oh, yeah. I'm team Hermione all the way at this point. I mean, <laughs> I I sort of have been since the beginning, um, just because as an adult, I'm not having that same like imprinting on a character experience that I might have. But yeah, she's, I mean, let's talk about who the real hero of these books are. <laughs> Every single one, it's Hermione. I've heard so many people say that they had that same experience too with her name. And I'm like, oh, I feel really happy that I like knew going in that her name was Hermione because I totally would have done the same thing. And when those things happen, it always kind of bothers me forever. Like in perpetuity, yeah. I'm just kind of like, oh, but I thought their name was this. And that, like, that's how I imprinted on them. And it's really hard to get past that. I remember when the movie came out, or maybe it was in the trailer that I first heard it spoken correctly. And I was like, what? Excuse me? That's not right. And one of my favorite things to do when I was little was to read books out loud. And so I went through a phase where I was reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone out loud to my mom. So she and I were both very confused because we'd both been hearing it in our head for all of that time as Hermione. Um, and now it's hard for me to like plug back into that old mode. I have to think about what I thought that it sounded like. But yes, it really blew my mind to find out that it was actually Hermione. And that is a much prettier name. So I'm glad for Hermione's sake that that's how it's pronounced and not Hermione. I want to talk a little bit about the treatment of female characters in these books. And as a feminist journalist yourself, I'd love to know your thoughts. I got this question from a few listeners who basically were like, J.K. Rowling, especially as a female author, kind of doesn't do her female characters enough justice. And I think that this obviously changes and develops throughout the series and there are high points and there are low points, but particularly in this first part of the series, I'd love to know your thoughts about that. No, I think that's really true. And that is something that I struggle with. There were a couple things that I really struggled with. And one was, you know, the treatment of female characters and some of the stereotypes that are laid on to them. A lot of the time, I think the only two that we really get a good sense of are Hermione and Professor McGonagall. Mm. And I feel like every other female character, especially female students, are really shoved into that giggly, you know, airheaded, not having any substance sort of role. And I mean, a lot of the characters are like that. There's a lot of one-dimensional characters because it helps establish good and bad and, you know, who who you really want to be friends with. But it is, in a way, disappointing that we don't have, you know, these deeper female friendships or that there aren't really fully formed women in these books that we get to see as role models. Um, you know, I notice, especially in the first few books, there are no female role models. Professor McGonagall is just kind of the uptight teacher that, you know, they're just trying to get by through her class. And all of the role models, all of those really deep bonds are through male mentors. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, why? Why is that? Uh, I think it's really interesting coming from a female author that there are no strong female role models aside from Hermione, who is developing into one as the series progresses. There's this sort of well-known story about J.K. Rowling, whose real name is Joanne. Um, and sadly, it's not a new story about sort of one of the primary challenges about being 
a woman and a writer, where she opted to use her initials, J.K. Rowling, instead of Joanne, because she was worried that presenting herself so obviously on the cover of her book as a female author would perhaps dissuade boys in particular from reading her book. So that's been out there for years. The book, um, for reference, published in 1997 in Britain and then in 1998 in Scholastic. And I very clearly remember finding out a year or two after I read the first book that J.K. Rowling was a woman. I kind of assumed that she was a man, I guess maybe because her character was a boy or because I was so accustomed to reading books written by men. Um, So that's sort of like a well-known piece of history about this book. And and I was talking about it this morning um, in my DMs with somebody about how I just, I wonder if there's like a parallel between the fact that she felt that she had to present herself kind of androgynously in her pen name and the fact that she obscures some of these female characters by not giving them particularly strong storylines, especially right off the bat. Yeah. And I mean, you do have to think about the time that this was being published in the late 90s. That's a very different publishing world than what we have now. I think there is such a big push now to have more gender inclusive writing and to have children's characters be more well-rounded. You know, I don't think that I, I was thinking about this when I read the book. I was like, would this book get published today if it was, you know, coming out today and it's, you know, the the first few chapters, all of the characters that are, you know, all of the Dursleys are kind of judged on their looks, Mm -hmm. on their appearance, on, you know, weight is a huge issue in the book. It's a very fat phobic book. The whole series is in a way. And I, I cringe every time I see that. And I'm like, oh, how I would hate to, you know, have this fall into the hands of a kid that sees themselves and sees, oh, I'm not worthy because of that. You know, I don't hear often from people who have had that experience with the book. But I, I did wonder a lot of the time, like, would this book make it today? And part of me is like, I don't, I don't know. Like, it was a different time. The late 90s was a very different time for publishing. It was. And I was thinking about the fact that the late 90s was sort of like at the middle or toward the end of this like very intense girl power movement. And I just wonder if J.K. Rowling had made Harry Potter like Harriet Potter. I wonder what would have happened. I wonder if it would have had the same level of success. I just wonder what the trajectory of the series would have been then. And it's not to say that, of course, she like made a mistake by making it Harry Potter. Like That's not what I'm saying at all. It's just sort of reflecting back 20 years in the future and thinking about if she'd maybe decided to make a different choice or felt the freedom to make a different choice because she knew that it would ensure the same level of success for her books. You just kind of have to wonder like what that would have looked like. And it is kind of hard to imagine because we have Daniel Radcliffe as Harry Potter and we know Harry Potter as Harry Potter. But I was just thinking about how interesting it is that we go so deep, seven books about this boy written by a female author who was sort of trying to conceal her gender for a while there. I think it's sort of just like an interesting thing to consider. Yeah, it definitely is. So when did the book start to feel really magical for you? You obviously kind of knew what was going to happen. We're not at the point in literary history where any of this is going to come as a surprise to you that Harry is a wizard or that he's going to Hogwarts. Maybe even Hagrid wasn't a surprise to you. But as you're getting into his story, I'd love for you to reflect on like when things started to feel like really special and magical in your first reading experience. So my first reading experience was reading it with my son. So we were both experiencing the first book for the first time together. 
And so when Hagrid breaks down the door and is like, you're a wizard, Harry, like that's, that was a moment for, you know, both of us, even though I, you know, I obviously knew that that was going to happen. And I think that first like view of Diagon Alley was really special mm. too. The first view of the castle, like all of it was just really magical. Um, you know, when you're encountering this world and all of these different places for the first time, the first ride on a broomstick, like <laughs> on a firebolt, like that's, it, it's all very cool. And it's really fun when you're seeing like a child react to that in real time as well. You know, I had a really great experience with it, just reading it for myself, because a lot of the times I would read it aloud and then like read it to myself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, later, because I like to have my own experience with the book. But it was all really magical, I would say, from the point where they're they're on their way to Hogwarts and beyond. I think that was where it like really picked up pace and was really fun to experience. I think that our first glimpse of Diagon Alley was my favorite when I was a kid, and it is to this day my favorite part of this first book. I've probably read this first book five or six times at this point and that scene that chapter never gets old for me my favorite part of this series hands down and I I mean the characters are great the adventures are great I love all of that but my favorite thing is the world building I love the detail that JK Rowling puts into every little piece of this world and just kind of like seeing this new magical realm through Harry's eyes and the details of like what's sold in each store and what the stores are called and what the vendors are like and just these like little nuances that I just think it's so brilliant and that really never loses its magic for me and then going to the to the school and like seeing it up on the hill for the first time as they're coming in on the boats even just the experience of riding on a train as a kid to be able to ride on a train by yourself that is such a demonstration of independence and they're like picking out their snacks and they get to go put on their robes when they're ready to take off their street clothes like little details like that just appealed to me so much as a kid because Harry was not only leaving this terrible home life with the Dursleys behind for something happier, but he was also gaining a measure of independence by entering the world of Hogwarts. I have to say, one of the funnest things about reading Harry Potter this year particularly is that I went to Scotland last month. And so I rode the Harry Potter train and I got to like go down in Edinburgh and see where all of the inspiration for the books came from. And so it was a really cool experience to do at the same time that I was experiencing the books for the first time. And there were people totally like in their full robes, their wands out, like ready to get on that train. Like it it is a trip people make specifically for the fandom. Um, And it was just such a cool experience. They sell like butterbeer, you know, cocktails on the train and have birdie bots beans and all sorts of fun stuff. That sounds amazing. I would rather do that than go to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal. I I don't think I want to go to the Universal theme park. I would rather go and have like the real experience in Scotland and and it's not like a snob thing I just like I don't think I want to ride a ride like I think I just want to feel it sort of in the setting more than like a manufactured theme park yeah well and for me as you know as a writer I like to see what writers are seeing as they're imagining these worlds I think that's so 
interesting. So, you know, I spent a lot of time at like the Writers Museum and like going, you know, going to all of these places that I had read about that J.K. Rowling had been to during the time that she was writing these books. And so it was like walking down those streets was like being inside that like mind frame of like, this is what you're looking at every day when you're trying to imagine this world. And I think that's a really special experience to have, um, you know, that's very different from the commercial Universal Studios experience, which is fun in its own different way, I think. Um, Like for my son, he's totally going to want to go and have that experience. Whereas I feel like I've just like fulfilled a huge part of my life by going to Scotland and like working some of that into my trip. And Gemma's referencing sort of this journey from J.K. Rowling's perspective. And for those listeners who don't know or who need a refresher, the backstory behind J.K. Rowling coming up with the idea for Harry Potter is that she was sitting on a train. She was on a train from Manchester to London. And the way she tells it, she had been writing for her whole life since she was six years old. And all of a sudden in that moment on the train, the idea for Harry just came to her. And she had this image of a boy with sort of messy black hair and a scar who was going off to this boarding school um, and who found out he was this magical wizard and from there the whole thing just kind of took off and as a writer myself it's hard to imagine something clicking quite that easily but like more power to her that's amazing and there's all these stories about all the time she spent writing in coffee shops when she wrote the first book she was a single mom getting government assistance and just like really struggling to put food on the table for her kids as we know she's now become very successful she is the first and still to this day the only billionaire author that we have yet to see on planet earth which is pretty freaking cool and the stats around the sales of these books it's just amazing as of february 2018 the books have sold more than 500 million copies worldwide it's been translated into 80 languages the last four books of the series can set records as the fastest selling books in history. So they just like continued to outsell each other. And the final book in the series, and we're not talking about the content of it, I'm just talking about the stats here. The last book in the series sold about 11 million copies in the US within 24 hours of its release. So to go from this struggling single mom who's like coming up with an idea for a book series on a train, the book didn't get that much attention as soon as it came out. It took some time to really pick up speed to now these massive sales for her to be so successful. It's really an amazing story. One of the cool things is like I I read up a lot on it before we went to Edinburgh and there was these small little coffee shops where she had, you know, worked a lot on some of the books. And then I've read that there was this beautiful hotel that she checked herself into when she was writing the last book and already has this huge following. And you know, to finish off that last book, she went to this absolutely amazing, like palatial hotel and sat in the lobby and would write there. And being able to see that, it was just like, yeah, that's two different worlds. Like, go JK Rowling. Yeah, congrats. Like, you made it happen. And I loved writing as a kid. As most listeners know, I've always wanted to be a writer, been inclined toward writing. And the first time I heard JK Rowling tell her story about coming up with Harry Potter, it was probably on the Today Show, like watching with my mom or something. And just the first time I saw her on screen and heard her talk about her journey as a writer, I 
was so I was so taken with her. I became fascinated with her. I think for probably three or four years, she was the subject of every essay that I was assigned in school. That was like, who is your hero? Who do you look up to? I think I was pretty fixated on J.K. Rowling for a really long time because her story is really amazing. And again, like the lengths that she's gone to to build this incredible world that so many of us have fallen into over the years, it's brilliant. And people have debated sort of like the literary merit of the book and whether or not it's good writing and I personally don't think it matters. That's not really what what has made it so important and so special. Yeah, I I sort of put that to the side. I mean, I notice when there's bad writing, it's not bad writing. No. Like I I could tell tell you that right now. Like it it has literary merit, but it's also a children's book. Mm-hmm. So it's got a different type of literary merit than some people might be looking for. But I think it really doesn't matter because it's the feelings that it inspires and that like nostalgia, not even nostalgia, but that like feeling of childhood, I guess, that it invokes. It's something else. And so I think a lot of that has to do, I I know we've talked about how the characters in the first book are a little bit one-dimensional, but I think what you said about the world, and, you know, I can pinpoint all these different points where I was like, that was so magical, and that was so magical. And she keeps that up through the series. Like, every bit of this world is so well thought out and so evocative that I think it's hard not to fall in love with them. Well, it never gets old. I think it would have been very easy for her to lay out this blueprint of Hogwarts and the village around Hogwarts and just sort of like the basics of being a witch or being a wizard in the first book or two like she could have just laid that out and then had the characters play in that for the subsequent books but she continues to expand it and there's more towns and like more activities and events there's the World Cup and there's like all of these other places that the characters go and so I remember thinking when I read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone for the first time as a kid like this is it. Like, it doesn't get better than this. What an amazing world. But she just continued to best herself with every book. And that's such a testament to how creative and brilliant she is. That, like, she just had this massive universe for Harry designed in her head from very early on. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I, I also think that probably evolved. I mean, I'm I'm thinking this, but I have no actual idea. But I think that probably is something that evolved during the writing. Um, you know, when I think of my own writing, like, these worlds when you're, you know, creating a fictional world, they start out sort of narrow. And I mean, to call it narrow in the first book is such, I I don't know. It's ridiculous to say, but it is in comparison to the world that she builds over the series, which is just astounding because like you said, you read the first book and you're like, how can it get better than this? There is no more magical world than this, but the magical world just expands in these amazing ways. I want to talk a little bit about Hogwarts as sort of like the starting point for this magical world because we do, I think as a culture, have a fascination with boarding schools And the fact that J.K. Rowling recognized that and set the book in a boarding school, but also made it this, like, amazing, magic, like, it's not just sort of, like, your basic magic ideas from other fantasy books or, like, magicians. Like, it's every part of this castle is just embedded in symbolism and magic and, like, codes and there's just, it goes on forever. And I would love your thoughts on, like, why we love boarding schools so much and why the setting of a boarding school makes this book that much more fantastic. I love a boarding school in a book. And I think especially for a children's book, it's so wonderful because it 
imposes so much independence on these kids. They don't have parental figures around. And so they have to really, you know, buck up and figure out the world on their own. And yes, they have their teachers and their mentors, but they are not around most of the time. Like when they go to bed at night, when they go up, you know, to their Gryffindor common room, that's just all kids. And they're kind of having their own little society. And that's really fascinating for kids. And that's really adventurous for them to think I kind of have my own life that is separate from my parents' wills, that is totally my own. Uh, You know, yeah, you still have to go to school and do all these regular kid things. But that time outside of class and that time outside of being with your teachers and with the headmaster, you're kind of on your own. And that's really, really fun, I think, for kids to imagine that they would have that much freedom. And what would I do with that independence? And what would my relationships look like if I didn't have a parent looking over my shoulder or telling me what to do all the time? I think the way that Hogwarts is set up also grounds the story a bit in a way that makes it more relatable for kids. Because I did read a lot of fantasy when I was growing up, and books like the Alana series that you mentioned before, and I'm trying to think of other examples, but like A Red Wall or any higher fantasy kind of book in particular, those kids aren't doing homework. They're not dealing with sort of basic interpersonal issues that I would have related to as a kid, or at least not to the extent that we see in Harry Potter. And I think that's also part of what made these books so successful is that kids sort of first were able to find a foothold in like the day-to-day machinations of like, you have to go to class, you have to do homework. Maybe your mom is sending you owls all the time and you have to be accountable to your parents, even if you are at boarding school. Like there are sort of day-to-day concerns in these books that I think a lot of kids can relate to, but it's all just sort of like punched up with this incredible sense of magic around it. Yeah. And I think that's really fun too, is like none of, none of the ordinary stuff is boring because like, yeah, it's like, oh, I have all this homework, but it's for classes like divination or, you know, things that are really different than what we're actually experiencing. But at the same time, they're still like, man, I have to write a paper in the library. My parchment has to be this long. You know, we got to stretch it out by writing really big. Like everyone knows that experience. And so it is really grounding in a way because you get that extra level of like, yeah, I relate to this. I know what it's like to have too much homework, but I wish that was my homework because it's so much cooler. Or, you know, I wish that when I got, you know, told off by my mom that it was by a howler coming in the owl post, you know, it's so much more exciting a way to envision your life and your daily routine. You were talking about the classes. I was reading an article. I forget which one it was, but I'll post links to everything that I found in the show notes for this episode for those who want to check it out. But I was reading an article or, or a listicle kind of about some of the funny things that adults rereading Harry Potter can latch on to now. And it was talking about how the book almost shows how hilarious academia can be, that like Harry's education is made up of these like liberal arts, but also like these weird kind of archaic, like arcane topics, like how hilarious sometimes, you know, the classes that we take as non-magical people can be. Like when you sort of think about the specificity of the classes that these kids have to take, this kind of academia is sort of funny. And it also makes us, it gives us an opportunity to laugh at some of our own leanings in terms of the way that we set up our education system. Yeah. What house are you in, do you think? 
I think I'm a Ravenclaw. Me too. Growing up, I would have loved to be a Gryffindor, of course, but I'm just not. I'm not brave enough. I'm definitely like the very studious, very focused Ravenclaw. I would be friends with Cho Chang for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. I was reading this Sorting Hat poem out loud when I was reading the book recently, and I read it to my husband, who's also a huge Harry Potter fan, and we don't have kids right now, but we do have a dog that we're very much obsessed with, and he's only a year old. And we talk to and about him as if he's our human child, as as you do. And we were disagreeing about what house he should be in. And I firmly believe that he's a Hufflepuff because he's kind of afraid of everything. And he's not that smart. And he's definitely not a Slytherin because he's a golden retriever and he has a heart of pure gold. But my husband maintains that he's a Gryffindor. And I was like, no, that's just because you, as a kid, wanted to be a Gryffindor and you know that you're a Ravenclaw. And so you want to now project that onto our fur child when you and I both know that he's a Hufflepuff. That's funny. I I still don't know which houses my children should be in. I'm pretty sure my youngest is a Hufflepuff, though. (laughs) Well, Hufflepuffs are great. I think they're great friends. They're very loyal. I would absolutely love to have some more Hufflepuffs in my life. We need fewer people trying to be Gryffindors and more people owning their Hufflepuff. Yes. So do you find, as you move through the book... Do you find that Harry is always the main character? I had a question from a listener about that. This person suggested that they don't feel that Harry is actually the main character of these books. And obviously there are all these fantastic secondary characters. I'm not sure how I feel about this, but I think it's a good question for discussion. And I do think it probably changes as we go throughout the series. If anything, I actually think that Harry becomes more central to the plot later in the books. In this book, it feels a little bit more like a level playing field with some of the other characters that he meets at school. Yeah, I think, I mean, I do still think he is the main character, though. I mean, approaching these books with fresh eyes, there was no one else that jumped out as being the main character. I think at times, J.K. Rowling does a great job of giving Ron or Hermione their own really big storylines and moving them into the spotlight for a while. But I think Harry, for the most part, maintains that role of the book. He's in the spotlight. Yeah. So let's talk about like the main conflict of this particular book. Harry has arrived at Hogwarts. He's learned about Voldemort, he who must not be named. I'm going to call him Voldemort because I find he who must not be named really hard to to say without tripping over. So he's learned that his parents have been killed by Voldemort and that Voldemort actually tried to kill him at the scene of the crime and he couldn't. Harry is to this day the only person who has sort of faltered Voldemort in his efforts to kill fellow wizards in his quest for power. And now that he's at school and learning about all of these other wizards and witches, he becomes suspicious that Professor Snape is working for Voldemort or is somehow directly involved with this very dark wizard. And he also becomes involved with this sorcerer's stone legend because when Hagrid picked Harry up and and took him to buy his books for Hogwarts, he went and picked up this very small package from Gringotts, the bank, and Harry makes the connection through a series of clues that this little package that he picked up is like something very important to Dumbledore, the headmaster. And he and Hermione and Ron do some research and they eventually figure out that it's the Sorcerer's Stone. And they believe that Snape, working on behalf of Voldemort, is trying to seek it out inside the Hogwarts castle so that he can get it to his master because the Sorcerer's Stone provides eternal life. Um, And of course, Voldemort, wanting to win back power after he's been weakened by Harry, wants to get as strong as possible and then become immortal. 
I think I captured that. It feels it feels like a lot to capture in a sentence or two, but that's sort of the main crux of what's going on with Harry, and he's on guard for things that Snape might be doing that seem dark or evil, and he's just kind of decided that Snape is the bad guy. I'm sure it's hard to separate maybe things that you've heard in pop culture about Snape's true identity when you're reading this book. And without giving too much away, I guess I'll just say that it's not what you think, people, if you haven't read the book. Snape is not what we think he is. He's dark and troubled, but he's not as bad as we think he is. How much were you able to sort of like buy into Harry's theory about Snape? And when did you start to suspect that he was wrong? Okay, well, there was never like a suspicion that he was wrong because that is the thing when you come to the books 20 years late, you get a lot of spoilers. And so I know that Snape is not the bad guy, even though he seems like the bad guy in all the books. You know, it's fun now where I'm at in the books because it's finally like Hermione's like, no, guys, like, give it up. We know that he's not the guy. He's creepy, but he's not Voldemort. Yeah, it's like, you know, if you did your work, he probably wouldn't hate you guys so much. That was one thing where I was like, man, I I don't really, I can't buy into that because I know. Whereas, like, my son, on the other hand, he doesn't know. So he was just, like, so shocked at the end of the book when it wasn't Snape right. that was there. He was just like, what? The defense against the dark arts teacher? Like, it's just like... <laughs> plot twist <laughs> which I mean it is it's a really great plot twist yeah um, I just knew that it was coming because I you know it's hard to avoid spoilers I'm already like kind of angry that I know the spoilers at the end of the book I'm currently reading yeah and then like one of his friends told him about something that happens later on in the books and I'm like no I didn't need that spoiler <laughs> in my life got like more things that I'm like no I wish I had done this earlier I will tell one brief story that has a spoiler for a book later in the series so if you don't want to hear it just fast forward 30 seconds or so because I was just talking about this story with my family over the weekend and I think you'll appreciate it as someone with a third grader who's reading these books so we had my younger cousin at our wedding three years ago and I think he was probably in third or fourth grade at the time and he was the only kid there we didn't have a lot of kids at our wedding and he was reading Harry Potter during the ceremony which like I totally support it it was a wedding gift as far as I was concerned that he was reading Harry Potter during the ceremony and we were taking pictures and doing whatever you do at weddings. And all of a sudden, I heard that he was, like, kicking all the chairs down. Because we got married outside, and then we moved the reception inside. And for some reason, he was, like, dismantling all of the chairs where we had the ceremony. And I go over, and I see that he's, like, karate kicking each of the chairs down, like, really violently. And I hear him, and he's going, Dumbledore dies. I can't believe you did this to me. I'm so upset. Dumbledore is dead. And he was, like, so upset by this. He was, like, overwhelmed. And he was so emotional that he was, like, breaking my whole wedding down. And for a minute, I was upset. And I was like, should I get my aunt and uncle? Like, should I tell them? And I was like, you know what? This is how he needs to work out his anger. And I, if I had had those kinds of folding chairs laid out for me when I was his age, when I'd gotten that news, I would have felt the same. But I do think this is what J.K. Rowling does so well, is she gets you so emotionally invested in who is supposedly good or who is supposedly evil. And then she totally messes with you by breaking your heart, by killing beloved characters, or by just, like, totally switching everything on you as she does in this book yeah professor quirrell i totally didn't see coming he's this very sort of meek shy teacher who doesn't really seem like he should be teaching defense against the dark arts to begin with but he is and the visual of him at the end of the book just taking his turban off 
I, this is not a phrase that I normally use, but like I was shook as a kid. Like I was very surprised and freaked out. And I remember being excited when I went to see the movie, the first movie. I do remember being very excited to see how they did that. And that was a really cool moment, the way that they like actually had that play out on screen. And then just to turn around and have this other creepy face in the back of his head. I was genuinely shocked as a kid. And I think even like the second or third times I, I read the book, I still felt like some element of shock that like she managed to pull that together the way that she did from a writing perspective. Yeah, it was a really big, like not only big plot twist, but like a big moment, a big reveal moment of Voldemort. And so I think that was really well done. Hats off to her for that ending. Turbans off to her. Turbans off. (laughs) The thing that I really appreciate as an adult about the scene of Harry and Hermione and Ron going through the obstacle course of sorts that they need to go through in order to actually get to the Sorcerer's Stone below this trapdoor in the school in hopes of, of beating Voldemort to it so that they can make sure that he doesn't rise to power again. Reading it now, I really appreciate the fact, and, and I see that it's so heavy-handed, obviously, in a way that I didn't when I was little. But I like how J.K. Rowling set it up so that each kid had a challenge that like they were particularly equipped for. And I think that especially like going through the books, we see that Harry sort of gets to win at so many things. Like he is strong and smart and fast and he has so many skills that make him the hero in almost every situation. And I think what's neat about this book is that in this particular set of challenges the other kids get a chance to shine too like Hermione gets to figure out this logic puzzle so that she can know which of the potions to drink and which not to drink and Ron is really good at wizard's chess and so when they walk into the room and there's this like real life game of wizard's chess he knows how to play better than the other two even though Hermione's super smart like she's not good at chess and so Ron gets to handle that and Harry of course gets to fly on the broom to find the right key and yes when I read it now I'm like, okay, this is really obvious for an adult to sort of be like, we're going to give each of you a job. But I think if we're talking about like lessons that the book can teach kids, I think that's a really good one, especially like knowing that Harry is going to get to be the winner of so many things going on into the series. Yeah, I really, I really loved that part of the book. I mean, I just, I think I just loved the whole book, but that was one of my favorite parts. And I will say this, I know we're not really discussing the movies, but I am also like, I read a book and then I watch the movie because I also didn't watch the movies as a kid um, or as an adult. So when I saw that play out on the screen, I was just like disappointed. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was so much more magical in my mind than it was when I saw it so but the ending was really cool that's why I struggle with the movies they're just not as magical I love Emma Watson as Hermione and I I love her portrayal of that character and it's made me love Emma Watson forever and always but beyond that I just don't feel like the movies did the books justice not to say they didn't try very hard I think they came really close but scenes like that just are not as magical in the movies as they are on paper. Yeah, I think, you know, that's another testament to her world-building skills. It can't translate, you know, even with all of the money in Hollywood, it can't translate onto the screen as well as it does into your mind. 
So you have this interesting history with these books, and I would imagine that when you were a kid, you heard all of these things from adults about what these books are really like and why you shouldn't be reading them. And now having come to them as an adult, having come to them with your own child, how do you kind of reconcile that? Like, does it make sense to you that your community was keeping these books from you? I think in in reading and preparing for our conversation today, what struck me as really interesting is that J.K. Rowling has been very open about some of the Christian themes that she actually put in the book. And then we have all of these religious groups rejecting the books or banning the books. And I I think that's fascinating. So I'd love your take on that as somebody who grew up in a community where the books were not permitted. Yeah. So it's really interesting coming to them as an adult. And I think you know, that decision must have been made on just the basis of witchcraft. Like there is witchcraft in the books. And so we will ban them because it does have pretty heavy handed good versus evil. Um, You know, it's very straightforward in that way. And it didn't look like the kind of book that needed to be banned. I mean, really, when I was looking at the books that were not banned, like the books that I was reading, Alana Trebond has amazing trans progressive themes, which, you know, great. I'm glad I got them as a child. But like, if they were looking for a book to ban, that would have been the choice had they been on top of it. Right. Uh, Far more than Harry Potter because it's so much more uh, against, you know, their belief system, I guess. But I just, I find that the banning of books is just such a silly thing Yeah, because, you know, that's only going to add to the lore, like, of a kid wanting to read it. I just, I, I guess I was not an avid enough reader at that age to, like, go out and seek it out and, you know, get it on my own. But I, I don't know. I think that just inspires rebellion and inspires kids to want to read it more. I know a lot of my friends did still read the books when I was growing up, so... I guess the only logic that I can see behind not banning the books, because I firmly believe that we should not ban books, but I I guess the only argument that I can see against maybe some parents being nervous to share the books with their kids or wanting to sort of like closely watch the way their kids were interacting with these books is that there is this emphasis on death and J.K. Rowling has been very open about that. I found a quote from her that said, my books are largely about death. They open with the death of Harry's parents. There is Voldemort's obsession with conquering death and his quest for immortality at any price, the goal of anyone with magic. I so understand why Voldemort wants to conquer death. We are all frightened of it. And I guess the extent that some parents sort of want to walk their kids through conversations about death a little bit more carefully or are nervous about their kids getting into this kind of content at a young age. Like, I I guess that's sort of the only logic that I can see behind it, but it does make me sad that so many kids aren't getting access to these books at a young age when they can really appreciate the magic just because of, like, a blanket assumption made about, like, general witchcraft. Because (laughs) at the core, it's really about, like, the hero's journey, and there are actually some of these, like, kind of fundamental good versus evil New Testament, like, Christian ideas. If you read the whole series, like, there's actually some really wholesome messages in here if you can get past the fact that it is actually like a very dark concept. So I just think it's really interesting that we have these like two very opposite narratives about the book at play. J.K. Rowling's, which is like, yeah, it's about death, but I actually think there's some Christian themes. In the last book, there's two quotes from the New Testament and then other groups saying like, no, like this is this is satanic. It's, it's just interesting to me the way that people read it differently. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is that they don't read it. Mm-hmm. I mean... People are making these assumptions, uh, you know, 
based off of what they hear others saying about it. And I think that's definitely what happened within my school. Um, you know, I, none of those adults sat down and read through the Harry Potter series. I mean, come on. Yeah. It was just like someone saw a kid on the broom, you know, <laughs> on the front of the book and they were like, nope, witchcraft. <laughs> we can't have this here. So I think it was really a silly choice to make by banning those books. And I, I do see why parents would want to walk their kids through it or perhaps set an age limit. Like, I think I'm going to wait an extra year for my daughter because I think it did get a little intense when my son was six. That's why he's reading them more now that he's in third grade. We kind of stopped for a while because the themes do get really dark and, you know, death becomes a much bigger part of it. And I'm just like, I don't want to have kids up with nightmares (laughs) over Voldemort. So it was, you know, sort of a choice to wait until they had more emotional maturity to talk to me about these topics. And I want to read through them, you know, with them because it is heavy. But I also think that kids can handle a lot more than we think they can. Um, You know, I'm always surprised with the things that my son wants to talk about when we're talking about Harry Potter. So it's a cool journey to be on. So all in all, being on that journey with your son, I know we can't compare this reading experience to the one that you had as a kid because you didn't read the book as a kid. But as an adult, do you feel like Harry Potter is living up to the hype? Yeah. You know what? I do. I, I can see it every time my son is reading through the books because it does evoke so much magic um, in that experience of childhood. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty taken with them myself. And I will confirm that every time I read these books, I love them more. So I will continue to read them as much as possible. I have some friends that read the whole series every holiday season. And that's sort of like the goal. Like I would love that. That sounds so idyllic to be able to do that around the holidays every year. But every every time I try, I just realize how long. Like it's such an undertaking to read even one or two of these books, let alone the whole series. That being said, every time I do it, I love the books more. And I don't think they'll ever be ruined for me in any sense, even though I learn more about them and have sort of like adult thoughts about, about the series and about the writing. They'll never get old. I'm obsessed with them today and always. So other than Harry Potter, Gemma, I'd love to know if there are other books that you've been reading that you would recommend to our listeners. Oh, you know what I just read? And I feel it's one of those books like I should have read this a long time ago, like probably, you know, in college. Um, I should have read A Confederacy of Dunces and I've come to it now and it was so good and so funny and like uh, it's it like gave me this you know feeling of longing because you know the story behind that book is the author committed suicide after you know being rejected this manuscript you know was never published and his mom found it and shopped it around to publishers and it ended up winning the Pulitzer and to think like he would still be alive today and writing you know just amazing works of fiction this is kind of all we have from him and it's sad in a way but it's also just this awesome book and it's so funny and I would just recommend it so highly to anyone I've actually never read it either so I might have to add it to my personal reading list thank you for the recommendation yeah it is so good and it's a quick read it's really funny it's set in New Orleans and I just I'm so taken with it right now. I will include a link to that book in the show notes for this episode. I will also include a link for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone for those who don't have easy access to a copy of it. And I will include a link to Gemma's book, Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward in the show notes as well for those of you who want to check it out. Gemma, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm so glad we were able to have this Harry Potter conversation together. Thank you for like stepping up to do this big title with me, for stepping into the ring on like the Super Bowl of SS 
are. I feel like we did it justice. I don't know that I could ever fully do Harry Potter justice, but I couldn't think of a better person to make a really good attempt at it with me. Yes. Thank you for having me. I feel very honored and a little bit nervous about it, but man, I am just enjoying the hell out of them. (laughs) Good. Keep enjoying. And I hope your son keeps enjoying them too. I'm sure you will. Bye, Gemma. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.